Good morning. It's good to see you, and as Brother Justin said, it's good to see your smiling faces. Uh, It truly is a blessing to gather on the Lord's Day and to share the blessings of this day, the blessings of fellowship and of worship, of communion, and of partaking of the Word of God uh, through the study of the morning. It's my prayer that the study will be uh, interesting and beneficial to you, um, as it always is to me in, in preparing uh, to, to study with you. We have, um, we have been, here we go, maybe. Oh, that's the pointer. There we go. Huh? Uh, I think so. I turned it on. Let's see if it's, uh-oh, maybe not. See if this works. Is that better? Okay. All right. Um, we've been studying um, about the life of Jesus uh, the past few times I've had the opportunity to speak. Um, and I thank Justin for leading that song this morning more about Jesus as an introduction uh, to the study of the morning. Um, really what I want to do with these series of studies is look at the life of Jesus in a chronological order as best we can as we go through the Gospels um, This is not going to be an exhaustive study. We're not going to try to go through every event in Jesus's life, but it's going to rather its intention is to be um, complementary to our studies in John that we're doing on Wednesday and some of the other studies that uh, different uh, brethren have uh, spoken on in recent recent weeks and months, including uh, the parables and and, uh, other things. Uh, but mainly, I hope, I hope this is something that is going to be interesting to you. I hope you have a desire to know more about Jesus. Uh, but that's really the intention is, is for it to be interesting, but more importantly, for it to be a, uh, a learning process for us to learn more about Jesus, to increase our knowledge of him. You know, Paul says that when the Lord returns, he wants to know him. He wants to be found in him. You know, and that, that certainly is our our desire and our prayer is to, to know more about Jesus. And so hopefully through these studies, we'll be able uh, to do that. You know, we've already, already covered several events uh, in the life of Jesus over the past couple of years. Uh, and, and I'll kind of point, uh, point that out as, as we go through this. First thing I want to do, though, is I want to kind of go through at a high level and talk about uh, the four Gospels in a, in a summary fashion. And, and much of kind of the outline here comes from a man named David Roper who wrote a commentary on the life of Christ. And, and so I want to I start with that, with just talking at a high level about the four Gospels. And the first thing I want to talk about is why four Gospels? Have you ever wondered about that? Why are there four accounts of the life of Jesus? Well, the simple answer is because the reason that is, is because that's in God's wisdom, that's the right way. You know, that's the perfect uh, revelation to us was through the eyes of these four men as guided by the, the Holy Spirit in their witness to the life of Jesus. Uh, the, another thing that, that strikes me is, you know, the, the principle that we find first in Deuteronomy chapter 19, that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, a matter was established according to the law of Moses. And so we have not only three, but four witnesses who bear witness to the life of Jesus and the truth of his life and his death and his burial, his resurrection and his plan for us as our eternal redeemer. You know, when you look at these four gospels, they, they cover the same 
material, right? They cover, they cover the life of Jesus, but their description comes in, in, in a sense from, from different aspects and from different approaches, and we'll talk a little bit about that. Um, but as an introduction to that, you know, in the book of Acts, there are three accounts of the conversion of Paul. Um, and all three of those accounts tell us different, come from a different perspective. They, they, they uh, describe or emphasize different parts of his conversion. And when we look at that, we realize that the, uh, the first that we find in Acts chapter 9 is Luke's telling us of that account as readers of the gospel of, I mean, of the book of Acts, um, the, the full account of, of uh, his conversion. And then in, in uh, Acts chapter 22, uh, it's where Paul is giving his defense before the Jews. And so he tells it a little bit differently in the, in the words of Paul. And then finally in, in Acts chapter 26, as he appears before Agrippa, he, he uses a different emphasis and a different words, in different words, in an attempt to bring the gospel in each of those accounts to the audience that he was, he was speaking to. So in that way, the, we can look at the gospels in a sense in that, in that same, um, in those same terms. First of all, let's talk about at a high level the Gospels. The, the first Gospel that we find in the New Testament is the Gospel of Matthew. We know that Matthew was one of the apostles. He was called by Jesus, and, and we find that his name was also Levi, and he was, he was a tax collector, or he was a publican. His writing is primarily, it would appear, to a Jew, Jewish audience because he makes use of many Jewish terms, including more use of the, of the term the son of David than the other gospels. He, uh, he emphasizes Jesus as the king who was to establish his kingdom. That's what the Jewish people were waiting for. And what they anticipated was the coming of the Messiah, the king who would sit on David's throne and who would rule over his kingdom. The word kingdom appears 55 times in the, uh, in the gospel of Matthew. There's special emphasis again on Jesus as the Messiah. There's special emphasis on his teachings, his kingdom, and his authority. We look at uh, the Gospel of Mark. We know that, that Mark is the John Mark that we uh, read about in the book of Acts, who was a relative of Barnabas, who was, who was a companion of uh, Paul on his early missionary journeys. Um, he is, Mark's writing is more towards a non-Jewish audience, and the reason for that is you look at Mark and he gives none of the, he kind of eliminates some of the stuff that would not necessarily be of interest to non-Jews, including he doesn't include the genealogies. Um, and when he talks about Jewish traditions, he gives explanations around those to someone who wouldn't necessarily understand what those Jewish traditions were. He uses uh, many Latin phrases where the other gospels use Greek phrases, which would maybe indicate that he was writing more towards the Romans or towards a, uh, a Roman audience. Uh, his emphasis is more on the actions of Jesus than the teachings of Jesus. He talks more about the miracles and shows in those miracles Jesus's compassion uh, for people. Uh, then we come to Luke, and Luke, of course, was the physician, and he was a companion of Paul uh, on several of his missionaries' journey, missionary journeys and through his imprisonment. So uh, Luke, Luke uh, saw firsthand, uh, learned firsthand uh, at, at the feet of Paul and also learned through personal interviews with um, those who were eyewitnesses to the life of Christ. And of course, 
like the others, he was inspired by the Holy Spirit and the things that he wrote. Uh, his writing is more towards, we believe, or scholars believe, towards a Greek audience. Um, he, he writes more on an intellectual level or towards people who were more um, very much students. His emphasis on Jesus was as the Son of Man and his perfect humanity. So the first three of these Gospels are called the Synoptic Gospels, or, uh, which means that they are, they are viewed together or they have a common view. They cover the same events uh, primarily in, in the life of Christ. Um, and they are looked at, they're complementary and they harmonize uh, with each other in these events. They cover the same material, but there's different emphasis. And it's uh, understood that these three gospels were all completed prior to the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70. So the final um, of the gospels is John that we've been studying, of course, on Wednesday nights. And John, we know, was the former fisherman and he was the beloved apostle and the brother of James. Um, he, his writing is more from a, the perspective of an eyewitness to the things that, uh, that he saw in the life of Jesus. Uh, there's different, different emphasis from the first three. Uh, and part, part of his writing was to correct some erroneous views of early Christians concerning the deity of Christ. And he, and he emphasizes that Christ is deity, that Christ is God, the Son of God. Um, there are many things of, that are in the first three Gospels that are omitted from John, uh, including his, the birth of Jesus and his baptism, him, his temptation, the parables, the transfiguration, um, the, uh, the institution of the Lord's Supper. And, and we understand that, again, his emphasis was different. He, he didn't apparently didn't want to cover a lot of the things that were already covered in the first three, but wanted to provide additional information about the life of Jesus. And his gospel, we, we estimate, was completed around A.D. 70. <clears throat> 90% of the events in the gospel of Mark are also included in Matthew, and 50% of those in Mark are included in Luke. So there is a lot of commonality, but also there are a lot of unique um, events and teachings and details that are given in each of the gospels that when we look at them collectively, we get, we get a fuller, complete picture of the life of Jesus and of those events. Uh, 90% of the Gospel of John is unique, so it includes material that is not included in the first three. And again, being the last and, and, and reading uh, the first three, God inspires him to, to add more uh, information about the life of Jesus and the person of Jesus. One thing we know, though, is that all four were inspired by God and all harmonize. Uh, they were all written for the same purpose, and that is to reveal Jesus Christ uh, to mankind. Matthew emphasized Jesus as the promised Savior, Mark, the powerful Savior, Luke, the perfect Savior, and John, the personal Savior. <clears throat> the timeline of Jesus' ministry, we estimate and, and have always assumed is about a period of three and a half years. That is understood because of the mentioning of the feasts of the Passover in the book of John. There are three specific times that in the, in the course of Jesus's ministry that John says it was the time of the feast of the Passover. There is a 
fourth time, which is in John chapter 5 and verse 1, that it refers to a feast day of the Jews, which many assume was also a, a feast of the Passover, which would, would mean that there were actually four times in the time of Jesus' personal ministry that they went through the feast of the Passover, and therefore the assumption that the, the time of Jesus' ministry was three and a half years. Actually, we don't know for sure because the Scripture does not uh, definitively tell us that. It could have been only two and a half years, but many people believe that that is too short of a time for all of the events that are recorded to have happened. And so the assumption is generally that it was three and a half years, but it could have been four. I guess it's not that important because the Scripture doesn't tell us definitively, but I think that's interesting uh, how that period was arrived at. The Gospels give accounts that take place in between 30 and 40 days in the life of Jesus. So in the total lifespan of Jesus, there are only accounts that happen in approximately 30 to 40 days. So it, it's kind of a, a small sample, but obviously the Holy Spirit reveals to us the things that are most important um, for us to know about Jesus and his life and his person. Approximately one-third of the total writings of the gospel cover the final week of Jesus' life before his death, burial, and resurrection, not including uh, his time on earth following his resurrection. <clears throat> but obviously the things that are written are those that are deemed most important by the Holy Spirit. The book of John, John writes in verse 20, chapter 20, verses 30 and 31, And truly Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written that you might believe, that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. And so... The things that we need are recorded here, and though we may spend a lifetime studying the, the really a, this brief description of Jesus in his life, we can never exhaust the knowledge and the wisdom and the, the uh, blessings that God gives us in these writings. There's a man named Simon Greenleaf uh, who lived from 1783 to 1853. He was one of the principal founders of Harvard Law School. He wrote a treatise on the law of evidence, uh, which was the gold standard for uh, examining evidence from a legal standpoint for over a, or approximately 100 years. Uh, he also wrote a 543-page book in which he examined the testimony of the four Gospels. And he examined it from the approach of how you would look at evidence in a legal case to discover any errors or, or uh, untruths that he could are in the, in the indication of those things that he found. And his conclusion was this, the Gospels are absolutely trustworthy. The four evangelists could not have possibly lied about Jesus Christ for their testimony rings true. Now that's not, uh, that's just from a human perspective, but I think it gives just that much more credibility to the truth of the Gospels. Um, the things that we've covered thus far, we've talked about Jesus in the Old Testament, you know, and we know that the theme of the Bible from beginning to end is Jesus Christ. We begin to see that as, as, as early as the fall of man in the Garden of Eden, and we learn in the New Testament that before the foundation of the world, God planned on sending Jesus. And so throughout the Old Testament is this drumbeat of promises and prophecies of the coming of the coming Messiah, uh, which was so highly anticipated by the Jewish people. Uh, when Jesus returned, when Jesus arrived. His shadow in the Old Testament feasts and events and sacrifices and all of those things the scripture tells us 
was a shadow of Jesus. Colossians chapter 2, verses 16 and 17, which I won't, but which I'll read, but it won't be on uh, the, uh, uh, the display. It says, therefore, do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration or a Sabbath day. These are a shadow of things which were to come, but the body that cast the shadow was Christ. These were all a shadow of Jesus, and they, taught, they were to teach us about something about the life of Jesus or the person of Jesus, the sacrifice of Jesus, the plan of God through Jesus. Jesus in prophecy, we've talked about, uh, we did some extensive studies in the book of Isaiah and in the book of Daniel, we talked about those prophecies of Jesus that we find there and the things that God's chosen people who had access to these writings and these prophecies, what they anticipated in the Messiah. Jesus said in John chapter 5 and verse 39, you search the scriptures, and he's talking to the Jews, for in them you think you have eternal life, and these are they which testify of me. And of course, the scriptures that Jesus was talking about were the Old Testament. In the Old Testament scriptures, they read about the Messiah and the eternal life that would come through the Messiah. And he said, these are the things that testify of me. So we see Jesus in the Old Testament. We talked about the 400 years of silence and the events that happened during those 400 years that, was, that were preparing the world for Jesus to arrive. In the New Testament, Paul says that when the fullness of time had come, that Jesus was born into this world. We read about the breaking of that silence in the announcement to Zacharias about the birth of John the Baptist. Uh, we talked about the announcement of Gabriel to Mary that she was going to be the mother of the Messiah and, and the, uh, the uh, miraculous way that Jesus would be born into this world. And then we read about also, we, we studied about uh, that same announcement uh, to Joseph. We talked about John's birth. We studied and read about that. We talked about and studied about their journey to Jerusalem, I mean to Bethlehem from, uh, from Nazareth and how God's providence led them there, caused them to go there so for the fulfillment of the prophecy of where Jesus would be born. And we'll talk a little bit about that this morning also. And finally, we talked about that Christ was born. All that had been anticipated for all of those uh, hundreds of years from the time or thousands of years from the, from the first prophecy of Jesus, the fulfillment of all of those things in the, and when Jesus was born into this world. We talked about the announcement to the shepherds um, in Luke chapter 2, verses 10 and 11, where the angel said, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you great good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord, the announcement, the Savior is born. Um, and then we had the reading of this morning, and I th thank Caleb for that, that talked about some of the events that happened immediately after Jesus was born, uh, where at the time approxim approximately or 40 days after Jesus was born, that according to the law, Mary and Joseph went to Jerusalem to present Jesus before the Lord and to make the, the, the sacrifice offerings that were required under the law of Moses. And we, taught, and we read about the events there where there was Simeon who had by revelation been 
told by God that he would not pass from this life until he had seen the Messiah. And so coming into the temple as Joseph and Mary and Jesus are there, he is, he is, he is, it is revealed to him that this is, this is the child, this is the Messiah, and he rejoices in that. And he prophesies uh, in his blessings to Mary and to Joseph about who Jesus was and, and the, the difficulties and hardship and the, the sword that would be thrust through her own soul because of the mission that Jesus had here in giving his life for all mankind. <clears throat> and so immediately after those, looking in chronological order, we, we estimate or understand that the events in Matthew chapter 2 happened sometime following that. So that was approximately 40 days after Jesus was born. We go to Matthew chapter 2. So many times these events are depicted as happening, happening when Jesus, the night that Jesus was born. And when we look at the, the, uh, the information here, we understand that that's not, that's not correct, that these events happened sometime after perhaps at least six weeks following and perhaps uh, up to six months to a year following the time that Jesus was born. But uh, going to Matthew chapter 2 and verse 1, it says, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. So a couple of things to note here. Um, it tells us, first of all, that these wise men were not in Bethlehem, but they came to Jerusalem uh, looking for Jesus. And we'll talk more about that in a minute. Um, it tells us that this was, it points out this was in the days of Herod the king or Herod the Great. Now Herod the Great, according to history, died in 4 B.C., so that is, that is where the um, estimates of when the year that Jesus was born came from. So the assumption that Jesus was born in the same year that Herod uh, the Great died, which would have been uh, 4 B.C. So just a couple of historical notes there. Uh, but it tells us that these were wise men and that they came from the east. Um, the term wise men comes from uh, the, the Greek word, uh, magi, or comes from the Greek word magos. It's, it's translated magi in um, several translations. It's also translated wise men as it is here. Um, that, ter that word magos meant a magian or our word for magic or magician. Um, it was an ori they were oriental scientists or magicians or wise men as translations state. We remember these men from the time that we studied in the book of Daniel. You remember when Daniel, when Nebuchadnezzar had the dream and he called all the wise men from the, who, who uh, counseled him and there were magicians and astrologers and, and uh, soothsayers and all these people where collectively they were known as the Magi. Eventually Daniel, after interpreting Nebuchadnezzar's dream, is made head of that order or he is, he's over all of these, these men who are wise men or uh, who study natural science and, um, and who uh, advise the king. Um, so a thing to note there is that often these men are, are, are described as being kings, but actually they were not kings, but they were people who would typically have uh, counsel, provide a counsel to the king. Uh, they studied science and astrology. Their knowledge was a mixture of both science and superstition uh, that we find in, in other places in the scripture. And the other thing to note here is they were Gentiles. <clears throat> when we look at the, the birth announcements of Jesus, the first announcement was, were to Jewish shepherds who were in the field. Um, 
We also see the revelation that was made, of course, to Zacharias and to, to Mary and to Joseph. Uh, we see Simeon, who was a Jewish man, and, and Anna, who was a Jewish woman, who also looked for the coming of the Christ, who, who was revealed to them at the time of the birth of Jesus. But here are Gentiles a world away who also receive revelation about the, the birth of Jesus, which I think is very important uh, emphasis by the Lord in giving us this, that, that, the, that Jesus was to be the Messiah of all people, the King of all um, believers in him that would encompass his kingdom. Um, it says that they came from the east. So when you look at um, where Jerusalem was, find my pointer here. Uh, here's Jerusalem. So somewhere back over here. So uh, it could have been, you know, here's Babylon. It could, they could have come from Babylon. Down here is Ur, where, of course, Abraham came from initially. Further over here, uh, this is Persia. Up here is Syria. Here's Arabia. It doesn't tell us which specific area. It just says they come from the east. Uh, the fact that they are described as the Magi tends to make me think that they came from that area where Daniel and the, the children of Israel were held, held captive uh, for 70 years. And so, you know, the interesting thing about that is, first of all, when the Jews returned from Babylonian captivity, many of them chose to stay. They didn't return back to Judea, but they stayed there in Babylon. And so you had the influence of the Jewish people really scattered across the world at this time, both from the exile of the, of the, uh, the tribe to the south and from Israel's um, being taken captive by Syria many years before that, and they were scattered across the world. And so you've had the Jewish influence around the world for a number of years. Also, the Old Testament was translated to Greek in 280 BC. So for approximately almost 280 years, other peoples of the world have had access to read these prophecies of the Old Testament about the Messiah. Um, so that's interesting uh, to think about maybe where the initial, uh, their initial knowledge about the Messiah came from. Uh, the distance that they would have traveled from this area could have been anywhere from 700 to 1,000 miles. Um, this, was not some, this was not something that they did on the spur of a moment. So they had to make plans for this. It, it was probably a large entourage that traveled with them. Some estimate there could have been 120 people that traveled in this caravan along with these wise men who sought to find the, uh, the king of the Jews who, who had been born, or he who had been born king of the Jews. <clears throat> so they came to Jerusalem and they came saying, where is he who is born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east, and we have come to worship him. So the first thing we want to notice is they didn't arrive in Bethlehem. They arrived in Jerusalem. How did they get there? <laughs> well, it says they had seen his star. Whose star? He who had been born king of the Jews. Um, their question also um, insinuates that they would have thought that all those people in Jerusalem would know about what was going on, that they would know about the birth of the king of the Jews, the birth of the Messiah. And so they, they start asking people, where is he that is born king of the Jews? A couple of interesting things to think about. First of all, this star. You know, many biblical scholars, historians have tried to come up with all different ways that this was a natural phenomenon of 
planets aligning a certain way or, or a meteor passing over or different things that they think might have created this illusion of a star uh, that these men were following. But I think when we really think about the scripture that this was, this was no ordinary star, but this was something, it was God who had revealed to these men about the, he who was born son, uh, the uh, king of the Jews about his birth, and it was God who led them by his star. So I believe uh, that we can um, really uh, reason from the events that this was no ordinary star. It was not a natural phenomenon, but this was something that perhaps was only seen by this particular group of people as they traveled from east to west uh, to find he who was born uh, king of the Jews. The other thing that, that we note here um, with the question we might ask, how many were there? You know, there, there's all, the, the picture that we have of these men that, that, is that there were three of them, and it's assumed that's because they, of the gifts that they brought. There are three gifts that are listed, and so how many were there? Well, we don't know. The Scripture doesn't tell us. We know there was more than one because they're described as a plural. There may have been three, but there may have been many more. Uh, we really don't know. Why had they made the journey? <clears throat> God had revealed something specific to them. And they had a great desire. What the trouble and the expense and the investment they made in this journey tells that this was something of primary importance to them. But what was so important to them? They were seeking him who had been, who was born king of the Jews for what purpose? To worship him. Not for any personal gain or personal recognition or any of those things. They simply sought to worship the Christ. And when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled in all Jerusalem with him. Interesting. <laughs> it's interesting when you look at re different people's different reactions to the announcement of the birth of the Messiah. Um, why would Herod have been troubled? He, had, he was probably troubled because they were looking for him who was, to be, who was born king of the Jews, which tells us something about Jesus that we know that Jesus was not made a king at some point in his life, Jesus was born king of the Jews. He was born king of the kingdom of God. Herod was not born <laughs> to be a king. Herod was appointed as king, as ruler over uh, this portion of Judea by the Romans. And scripturally, he had no entitlement to that throne because he was not a descendant of David. And so when he hears about one who is born king of the Jews, that had to, he immediately, he, he sees this as a threat to his own position, to his own power. Um, why would all of Jerusalem be troubled? Probably because Herod was troubled. You know, they had seen events in the past where there was potential uprising against Herod, and he, he was ruthless in destroying people who threatened him or threatened his authority and putting people to death. And so they probably feared that there may be some kind of a rebellion that is brought against Herod. And so this was troubling to them too. But again, compare their reaction to this news back to the, the shepherds that we read about in Luke chapter 2. So it was when the angels had gone, speaking back there in Luke chapter 2, had gone from them after they announced the birth of Jesus, the birth of the Messiah, the shepherds said to one another, let us now go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has come to pass, which the Lord has made known to us. What was their reaction? Let's go see. 
let's go see this marvelous thing. And so they came and they with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the babe lying in a manger. And they, when they had seen him, they made widely known the saying which was told them concerning the child. All these things that, and all those things who, all those who heard it marveled at those things which were told them by the shepherds. So we're very familiar with these verses. Something maybe that we sometimes overlook is this part. When they had seen him, they made widely known the saying which was told them concerning the child. What did they do? They went around and they started telling people about what the angels had announced to them, who this child was that they were witness to. This was the Messiah. The Messiah is here. The king of the Jews is born indeed. And it says that all those who heard it marveled at those things which were told them. How easy is that secret going to be to keep? Not very easy. You're talking about a tinderbox of anticipation of when the king of the Jews, when the Messiah, when the son of God would be born, and all of a sudden it's declared to these men by angels and they start telling other people who in turn are going to tell other people and these rumblings are going to go throughout from Bethlehem to that seven miles up to Jerusalem and probably throughout Judea, these things. And so when the Magi... When the wise men arrive in Jerusalem, this is probably not the first time they, that those people in Jerusalem have heard anything about this. What is a bit remarkable is no one seems to be trying to, to, to find out if it's really true, right? You, really, you don't see a caravan of people from Jerusalem going to Bethlehem, but you do see people, the Gentile people from a world away making a very extensive trip um, to come and see Jesus. <clears throat> J.W. McGarvey said, Christ is the peace of the righteous and the trouble of the wicked. And that statement is, was true at the time that Jesus was born and it is true today. Jesus is the peace of the righteous. He is the trouble of the wicked. Think about, first of all, Herod, who knew probably to a large degree the the prophecies concerning the Messiah, he probably just didn't want him coming in his lifetime. He didn't want him to be a threat to his position. And isn't that true really about a lot of people that they like the idea of a savior, they like the idea of a Messiah until it requires something of them, until it's going to make a change to their life or to their lifestyle. Um, and then it's trouble. <laughs> Rather than being peace, it's trouble. <clears throat> and when he had gathered all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where Christ was to be born. So Herod hears these things. He's troubled by it. He calls those who knew the word of God to say, where is it that the Messiah is to be born? And, you know, it's interesting, again, that, that Herod, who is, who is the king over Judea, is ignorant of those, of he, though he knows of those prophecies, he's ignorant of them. Um, but the only true, the true answer to this question would come from where? It would come from the word of God. So they said to him in Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet, but you Bethlehem in the land of Judah are not the least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you shall come a ruler who shall be shepherd, who will shepherd my people Israel. Of course, that quote is from Micah chapter five, verses two through four. Um, again, it's only been a short time since the announcement of Jesus' birth 
was made to the shepherds and they have been relaying this message to other people, it is, it's almost certain that this news has reached Jerusalem, but where is the curiosity to go among the Jewish people to confirm that which they've heard? Then Herod, when he had secretly called the wise men, determined from them what time the star appeared, and he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the young child, and when you have found him, bring him word to me so that I may worship. Bring word to me so that I may come and worship him also. So Herod calls the wise men (laughs) into himself in secret. So he's wanting more information. I can imagine some of the questions Herod's probably wanting to learn from them. How did you hear about this? How did you... Who told you about this, this king of the Jews being born? How did you know to come here? What about this star? When did you first see this star? Obviously, that was something he wanted to know. Why? He's, trying to, he's doing calculations. When was, this, when was the Messiah born? Because ultimately, what's he going to do? He's going to try to destroy him. <clears throat> and so when, when Herod sends his army to go to Jerusalem to destroy the Messiah, he tells them to kill all male children under the age of two. Why? Because he's calculating that's the time frame based on his interview with these men that the Christ could have been born. Um, and again, that's, we don't know for sure how long the period has been, but according to this, it may have been up to a year. He may have doubled that just to be, to, uh, to be safe. We, we really don't know, but obviously there was some reason he thought it could have been Uh, up to that period of time. And of course, he has no intention of worshiping. (laughs) He was born king of the Jews, but he seeks to destroy him. And when they heard the king, they departed and behold, the star which they had seen in the east went before them till it came and stood over the young, where the young child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceedingly great joy. And what this tells us is at some point they lost the star. Okay. They were following the star. They may have assumed the whole time they were traveling that he who was born king of the Jews would be born in Jerusalem. That's probably the reason they ended up in Jerusalem. But at some point, they lost the light. How did they regain it? They went to the word of God. They found the truth of the word of God, the instructions of the word of God. And when they followed those instructions, the light was back. And so they rejoiced greatly in that light which revealed to them the place of the Messiah. When they had come into the house, they saw the young child with his mother Mary and fell down and worshiped him. What was the purpose of all their trip was to worship Jesus, to find him who was born king of the Jews. They had, they had reached their mission. Their mission was complete and they had found him who was born king of the Jews. It's interesting to note, it says they came into a house. Remember that Jesus was born in a stable. They've probably been in, in Bethlehem now for at least six weeks, perhaps up to six months to a year, but, but they've chosen to stay in Bethlehem for that period of time, and obviously they are now living in a house. So they found the house uh, to live in while they're there. <clears throat> and when they opened their treasures, they presented gifts to him, gold and frankincense and myrrh. So we, we, we you know, the scripture doesn't tell us specifically what these gifts represented, but it's hard to ignore the fact that gold would be a gift uh, fit for a king and that that frankincense would be a gift fit for a priest and that myrrh would be a gift fit for a sacrificed savior. So those, there's certainly, the scripture doesn't tell us that, but there appears to be certain symbolism in those gifts that they brought. It's also um, God's provision. 
as we think about the events that would happen shortly after this, after the departure of these wise men, that God's going to warn Joseph to take Mary and Jesus and to get, to get out of Bethlehem and to go into Egypt because Herod would seek the life of Jesus. And what would these things provide? They, they would provide a living for them for a period of time as they, as they were on the road and unable to support themselves in other ways, that this, would, this is God's, in another way, God's provision uh, for that time. <clears throat> it was customary, anyone who approached royalty, the throne, the king or the queen in this time, that they, they never came empty-handed. They always brought a gift. And so you think about as we approach the throne of the Lord, the, th the throne of Christ, what gifts do we bring to him? First of all, that we bring an obedient heart. Romans chapter 6 and verse 17 says that you have obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine which was delivered to you. We present our lives, as Paul said, as a living sacrifice, which is holy, acceptable to God. We present our, our praise. Therefore, let us continually offer the sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. Obviously, our thanksgiving that we always give always to God and the Father of, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We give our songs, the fruit of our lips in song, speaking to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to, in your hearts to the Lord, Ephesians 5.19, and also our means as we do on the first day of the week. Let each give as he purposes in his heart, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. Then being divinely warned in a dream that they should not return to Herod, they departed for their own country another way. You know, there's, a, there's a, some symbolism here too that obviously they ignored Herod. They ignored the wicked and they chose the way of God. But what did God direct them to? He directed them in a different way. Just as all true worshipers who come to Christ do not leave the same way that they came, that we are changed by coming to know Jesus Christ. Our lives are changed. Our ways are changed. And, you know, in conclusion, this reminds me of another story that we find in the book of Acts, uh, in Acts chapter 8, where a man from Ethiopia traveled a long distance to come to Jerusalem to worship God. Um, and as he's returning home in his chariot, being a seeker of God, God leads him to Christ through a man named Philip, an evangelist named Philip. And God instructs him to go and join himself to uh, this man. And we pick up uh, the account in Acts chapter 8 and verse 30. So Philip ran, and, and heard, ran to him and heard him reading from the Isaiah the prophet and said, do you understand what you are reading? And he said, how can I except someone guides me? And he asked Philip to come and sit with him. And the place of the scripture that he read was this. He was led as a sheep to the slaughter and as a lamb is dumb before its shearer, so opened he not his mouth in his humiliation. His justice was taken away, and who shall declare his generation? For his life is taken from the earth. And the eunuch answered Philip and said, I ask you, of whom does the prophet speak, of himself or of some other man? So we look at the veiled description there of Christ and his sacrifice. And to this man who only knew the Old Testament law, this was confusing of whom he was describing and Philip opened his mouth and he began at the same scripture and he preached unto him Jesus. The scripture does not tell us everything he told him about Jesus. But giving the man's perspective of the Old Testament, I'm sure he started with those prophecies of the Old Testament. He talked about 
the cross of the Old Testament and the, the shadows in those things that they did and the, and the events of the old law. <clears throat> I'm sure he talked about the birth of Christ and he talked about his life and he talked about his death and his burial and his resurrection. And he also talked to him about how we also take part in that death, burial, and resurrection because the next sentence says, <clears throat> and when they came down the road, they came to some water and the eunuch said, see, here is water. What hinders me from being baptized? <clears throat> and Philip said, if you believe with all your heart, you may. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the son of God. So he commanded the chariot to stand still. Both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water and he baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the spirit of the Lord caught Philip away <clears throat> so that the eunuch saw him no more. And he went on his way rejoicing. What is the conclusion for us? <clears throat> Jesus came into this world to redeem all people. His salvation, his sacrifice was for both Jew and for Gentile, for all people, for all those who would seek him and find him. And finding him, our lives would be changed. Our lives and our ways that we no longer follow our ways, but we follow his ways. Being born again of the water and of the spirit to arise to walk in newness of life. If you're here this morning, you've never done that. Or if you're here this morning and we could assist you with prayer or in any other way, we would invite you to come forward as we stand and sing the song that's been selected.